Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land from which we broadcast today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. Today on Work With Purpose, we discuss the national disgrace of violence against women and their children with the two Australian public service leaders with responsibility for combating this cowardly and ugly scourge. The numbers are appalling. One in three Australian women have experienced physical violence. One in four Australian women have experienced violence by an intimate partner. One in five Australian women have experienced sexual violence. Australian women are most likely to experience physical and sexual violence in their home at the hands of a male current or ex-partner. Of women who had children in their care when they experienced violence from an ex-partner, 68% reported that children had seen or heard the violence. So before we get into today's conversation about the National Action Plan, let's just sit with those numbers for a minute and think of those defenceless women and children just for a moment. Think of the trauma. Imagine the terror and the abuse. Feel the fear and the deep pain and the shame because those statistics are not numbers. They're people. They're your mother, your daughter, your sister, your cousin, your work colleague or your friend. And it's appalling. And as an Australian male, I am deeply ashamed. We have to do better. There is no excuse, never any excuse for violence against women and their children. Liz Heffron-Webb is the Deputy Secretary of the Families and Communities Stream at the Department of Social Services and the co-chair of the National Plan Advisory Group. Liz also has responsibility for the National Redress Scheme, which was established in response to the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. She also has responsibility for problem gambling policy, financial wellbeing policy and programs, and the cashless welfare policy. Liz was previously a First Assistant Secretary in the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet in the Indigenous Affairs Division, where she was responsible for education, community safety, health and wellbeing programs and policy for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Liz has an arts degree with honours in government from the University of Sydney. Liz, welcome to Work With Purpose. Thanks, David. Alison Frame is the Deputy Secretary of Social Policy at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and she was also a co-chair of the National Plan Advisory Group. Alison commenced as Deputy Secretary of Social Policy in PMNC in August of 2020 and has led social policy initiatives and reform across both the Commonwealth and New South Wales governments. Most recently, she worked in the New South Wales Government as Group Deputy Secretary, Property and Housing, where she was responsible for nine housing and property agencies, including Crown Lands, 
Property New South Wales and the Land and Housing Corporation. During her time in other New South Wales government senior leadership roles, she was the Deputy Secretary in both the Department of Planning and Environment and the Department of Premier and Cabinet. Alison led reforms on child protection, domestic violence, Indigenous policy, disability policy and governance. Alison holds a Bachelor of Speech Language Pathology and a Bachelor of Political Science from the University of Queensland and has a Master's of Public Administration from the London School of Economics. Alison, thanks for joining us on Work With Purpose. Thank you for having me. So, look, I'm not really sure where to start with this, particularly as an Australian male, because I just find these figures are just so un acceptable. They're, they're so evil. They're humiliating. They're, they're degrading. But Liz, if I, if I might start with you uh, as a co-chair of the National Action Plan, just how big a problem are we talking about? Thanks, David. I mean, you, you ran through the statistics, so I won't repeat the statistics, but they are, it is um, a very significant and serious problem. And I think um, many people are aware that it's the leading cause of preventable death for women um, aged between 25 and 45. So it's it's something that, as a nation, warrants our deep and sustained attention. And I put the emphasis on the word sustained because I think um, often with issues like this, we can it it can be easy to throw up your hands and think. It's so big and it's so prevalent. Uh, how how are we ever going to make a difference and how are we ever going to reduce it? But there is evidence bases for us to draw on on what what works, what what can have an impact, and so um, that's how I kind of approach the topic, thinking it not not that we're going to chew bite off the whole elephant at once, but we're just going to start with what we can start with, what we know and um, build our knowledge and start where we can have the most impact. Now, it's not a new problem and there have been previous action plans. So could you also just give us a little bit of background as to exactly what has been discovered previously and and when you talk about the the evidence that's been assembled, what do we know of of the actual problem? So... um That's right. There's been um, collective efforts uh, in Australia to reduce domestic violence um, for a number of years. And in 2010, the first national plan to reduce violence against women and their children was um, launched and it had bipartisan support. It was a joint effort by the Commonwealth and all the states. Um, And that has run, uh, that was designed to run for 12 years and so it concludes this year. Um, I guess that um, on the positive side, that action, that national plan has achieved some change. We've measured that Australians are less likely now to hold attitudes supportive of violence against women. Behaviour that once went unchallenged is now regarded as unacceptable by the majority of Australians. And more Australians are recognising non-physical behaviours as violence. And that data comes from the National Community Attitudes Towards Violence Against Women surveys that um, the Commonwealth Government funds. But prevalence of violence does remain unacceptably high. As you said, um, around one in four women and one in 13 men have experienced physical or sexual violence from a current or previous partner since the age of 15. 
and the proportion of women reporting a recent experience of sexual violence increased from 1.2% in 2012 to 1.8% in 2016. We've also seen, um, I guess, got a better understanding now of the impact of violence on particular target groups such as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and children, women with disability, the LGBTIQ community and other groups that experience multiple forms of disadvantage. Okay, so listen, we will come. I'll come back to you in a minute, just to, to to get into a little bit, unpack a little bit more about where do we go from here and what do we do. But Alison, uh, your role there at PMNC, you know, Prime Minister and Cabinet obviously has that central coordinating role, that that ability to be able to bring the whole of government together. Was that a, a particular focus of your effort in terms of the development of the National Action Plan in your role as the co-chair? Yes, certainly it was. I mean, it's something that is really high on the agenda here in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and always has been. Um, And one of the reasons for that, along with all the statistics you've gone through, both of you have gone through a range of statistics that continue to be shocking and confronting when we hear them. And I think it's important to keep to keep, you know, calling out these statistics all the time to remind people of the extent of the issue. But along with the, the, the knowledge of the extent of the problem, we also have the Office for Women uh, based here in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. And that's in within the group here, within the social policy group in Prime Minister and Cabinet. So obviously it's a really big focus for us and that brings a real practical focus of work from Prime Minister and Cabinet on uh, progressing the work of the Office for Women. That's got a specific focus on safety, where we work very closely with um, Liz and her department, and they have the lead on those safety issues. And then the Office for Women also work across other other issues for women, uh, women's leadership, and even more importantly, women's economic security, which is so closely tied to the issue of women's safety. We know that women who are more economically secure, if they're less vulnerable financially and able to look after themselves and their children and not dependent on someone to an enormous extent, then they are going to be more safe and have more options to exercise there. So that's a really important agenda as well that complements and, and uh, basically underpins the safety agenda as well. So there's a lot of work goes on in the Office for Women around women's economic security, leadership, and then the really strong focus on safety, which is which culminates in the national plan, as you've referred to there. Mm. So in terms then of that sort of central coordinating role, my understanding is, is that you you, you took advantage of some of the sort of architectural changes inside government that were brought about by COVID um, to better coordinate responses towards this new national action plan. Is that correct? Yes, certainly. The new architecture that was put in place as part of the COVID response, and this is part of working in government, you always look for opportunities and what, what can the new machinery um, offer in terms of increased influence. And in, in an issue like this, women's safety that's long-standing um, and needing this constant attention and um, and support, you want to leverage any influence that you're able to. And with the National Cabinet, the creation of the National Cabinet, uh, there was also created alongside that a National Federation Reform Task Force. And underneath that, they set up a women's safety task force. So that 
um, actually absorbed some long-standing work from all the women's safety ministers across the states and territories and brought them together with the Commonwealth to continue the work on the national plan that had been going on for a long time. But it did give it a renewal of focus and a, and a new accountability mechanism to the Federation Reform Task Force, which is the leaders of every state and territory in Australia and the Prime Minister and also the treasurers of every state and territory in Australia and the Commonwealth Treasurer and also a local government representative. So they meet once a year under this architecture and the Women's Safety Task Force are meeting far more frequently and have been progressing the national plan through all, all the ministers across the nation. But also alongside that, the actual National Cabinet itself, we've been able to use to progress some issues, and this is at the instigation of the government, to progress some issues around women's economic security and just to leverage the fact that premiers and first ministers and the prime minister are sitting around the table and are on board with wanting to move an issue forward and to move it faster than it might have been in the past. And so we've taken some things to National Cabinet around women's economic security, where there's been a quick agreement then to a whole new framework for women's economic security that's focused on reducing the gender pay gap, on reducing barriers to women's labour force participation, on um, increasing female educational attainment and increasing represent representation of women in senior leadership and financial security, really fundamentally increasing women's financial security. And all states and territories have got on board and said, yep, we're, we will sign up, we're going to do a new reporting framework and we're going to report our progress against these things. And as I said earlier, David, these things are really important underpinnings of safety as well. The more independence and autonomy and um, financial security women can enjoy, the more um, safe they're going to be. They're certainly correlated. I know it's not, you know, it's not a precise correlation, but they are important um, working together in terms of addressing gender equality, which is a primary driver of violence mm -hmm. against women and their children. So we've really um, taken that opportunity to use the National Cabinet and and also in um, just before Christmas, they agreed to, the states and territory governments agreed through that mechanism again, through the National Cabinet, to extend reporting on gender equality um, in all their agencies and, in, and um, departments across their massive organisations in each state and territory government to provide reporting to the w Workplace Gender Equality Agency on that. So yet another um, outcome delivered there in record time, I think it's safe to say record time, that supports all this work around women's safety. And I just, I do wonder whether we would have been able to get those things agreed as quickly without being able to leverage that that new national architecture there. And you've got this mindset with their, all leaders at the moment of moving quickly to respond to issues and taking the opportunity to progress things that might have been, um, you know, issues kicking around for a long time. So it's great to see that opportunity taken up and how it can support the women's safety agenda. So, Liz, Alison describes there the sort of momentum that these archi architectural changes and frameworks have been able to, to deliver. Are you then optimistic that we are going to see improvements uh, off the back of those changes and improvements? I am optimistic. Um, I think sometimes working on topics like this, it can you can struggle a little bit to retain your optimism because the dial on things like this moves slowly. So this is about um, behavioural change, attitudinal change over a whole population. And we often talk about things like um, 
seatbelts or smoking bans or immunisation, other major kind of public health issues where it's it took many, many years before, um, you know, the campaigns and the activity started to show a real change in behaviour. So I try and keep a, a really long horizon uh, when I'm thinking about, about change in this area. As I said, we are starting to see attitudinal change. You, you hear that anecdotally. A lot of people tell you that their kids have much more kind of gender equality-focused attitudes, that they don't have the kind of ideas about what a girl does and what a boy does or, you know, they're not as hung up on gender stereotypes as um, older people. So you can see that playing out anecdotally, but it also shows up in the data that um, rigid gender stereotypes, um, Australians are less likely to stick to them now. And there's a pretty good body of evidence that violence against women is underpinned by rigid gender stereotypes and expectations of um, men and women. So I do, I do stay optimistic. Um, it is hard when there's, you know, everyone is aware of some of the most horrific examples of um, violence against women and children in recent years, and I'm not going to go over them, but um, th when those uh, cases hit the headlines, you do sometimes feel like you're not making a difference, but I, I try and look at the long view. Mm. So it is the new National Action Plan does look, you know, it's a 10-year plan, 22 to 32. Could you pick out perhaps one or two, perhaps three priority areas that the National Action Plan will be focusing on? That question to you, Liz, first. Yep. So I, I should say that we're still in the consultation phase. So many people will know we had a, a violence against women summit last year that the Prime Minister hosted at Parliament House. That was the culmination of um, months and months of consultations. We had done workshops with experts, with victim survivors, um, consultation with the general public, etc. Um, and so we are put together, have put together a draft national plan which went out um, for final consultation on the 14th of January. So when I talk about the kind of key themes and architecture of that, I will say that it's still draft, so subject mm -hmm. to the comments we get back. But essentially it's got four principles. They are gender equality, as I mentioned, the diverse lived experience of victim survivors, closing the gap. Uh, as many people know, there's a closing the gap target specifically related to uh, violence and intersectionality, which is about the interplay between gendered drivers of violence and other forms of discrimination, inequality and disadvantage. And then we've got four pillars. So those themes that I, those principles I said should underpin all of our actions. Then we're going to have actions in each of the following four pillars, which is prevention. So working to change those attitudes that I talked about. Early intervention, which is working with people who are at high risk of experiencing or perpetrating violence uh, response. So um, helping people who are currently experiencing violence um, through systems like the police, justice system, crisis support. And then recovery, which is about helping victim survivors to be safe, healthy and resilient. As Alison said, to uh, re-establish economic security as well as personal security and to enable them to thrive. So beneath all those pillars, there'll be a, a set of actions 
um, the government's still um, determining the exact shape of that, but that'll be the structure of it. Mm. So, Alison, Liz describes, you know, a comprehensive body of work, uh, complex. How do you, as a co-chair of the National Plan Advisory Group, what's the role and how do you bring people together? Because as you described in your earlier answer, it's the National Cabinet, the National Federation Reform Task Force, the, the Women's Safety Task Force, it's the treasurers, it's the leaders, it's, and that's at that political, at, at that highest level. But then underneath there, obviously, there are a huge number of um, uh, public servants working across all of state, states and territories. And then there's the, the third sector being involved as well. How do, you, how do you run something like that? How do you pull it together in an effective way so that you can land at um, a draft national plan that Liz has just described? Yeah, thanks for that question, David. I mean, certainly you start with an advisory group that is comprised of really diverse expertise um, and different experiences. And that's what we did working with Liz and her team at DSS to make sure that the advisory group, I think there's 19 on it overall, um, is comprised of um, advocates as well as victim survivors and service delivery organisations. And you make sure that you've got a diverse group of women and men on that group who are able to represent different perspectives. So to me, the critical part of that group is that the in-depth knowledge they all bring of different perspectives and experiences of domestic and family violence. And I know Liz and I just benefit so much from that. And we ask a lot of them too. We ask a lot in that group about how we want them to harness their own networks and bring information back to the group. It's not just them sitting there as an individual. They have deep ex uh, networks and expertise and we want that to be brought to the table. So they do all of that for us and that informs the national plan and, and makes sure that we're hearing from a, a diverse group. As Liz said, there was also a really significant summit last year and her department's also convened a lot of other additional consultations. So there's been really expansive consultation. For my role in PM&C, David, I think in relation to what you said about how do you bring it all together is co-chairing the group with Liz, but also always having in mind where is the opportunity in all these other um, entities and groups and, and the momentum that's provided by the National Cabinet and the Federation Reform Council and the next meeting of the Women's Safety Task Force. There is so much goodwill in all of these groups and, and not good goodwill, not just goodwill, also the same um, disquiet that you expressed at the beginning, David, about this current situation. Everyone wants change. So my, I think my role there is to think about where where is the opportunity to take things to those groups then and to try and move things along more quickly and to really harness the desire for change that is, is just there across the board. You just, Liz and I don't work with anyone, I don't think, who doesn't really want to see change happen and wants to work really constructively to help deliver that. But how do you then make sure that everybody's heard, that everyone can make their contribution? Because I'm sure there are difficult personalities to, to manage different people with different priorities at different times. How do you bring it together into that coherent contribution, which then enables you to, to settle on that draft national action plan? I'll start on that one, David, if you want. Then I might hand over to Liz. She would have some more about the extent of the consultations there in, social, in the Department of Social Services. At the, in the actual group itself, the National Plan Advisory Group, 
Liz and I have no trouble there making sure that everyone gets an opportunity to express their view. And we, we literally go around the table and make sure that everyone's provided that opportunity. We make sure that it's not just one or two people we're hearing from all the time. They're quite lengthy meetings, as you would expect, and they need to be to talk through the issues in detail. And then there's also opportunity to follow up offline. And Liz and I would have other conversations around that as well. So, and as I said earlier, there's goodwill in the group. No one wants to exclude anyone at the table or to, to you know, they want to make sure that everyone's um, perspectives are offered and that Liz and I and all the members of our team that are there benefit from that in those conversations. So I don't find that's too difficult in the National Plan Advisory Group. But as you say, there's a lot of people in this country who have strong views, who want to be heard, and Liz and her team have run some some broader consultation processes there to try and capture, obviously, thousands of perspectives into the input to the national plan. Liz, you, uh, or David, I'll hand back to you, but I think that I've <laughs> answered that question from, from PM&C's perspective. Yeah, great. Thanks, Alison. But yeah, Liz, that, that's really interesting having, as as Alison described, you, you had your hands on the consultation. You know, you're trying to reach into the community through the representation, through the advisory group. What were some of the big challenges around that? I think um, some of the challenges are that, um, you know, there's a degree of scepticism out there. There's, a, there's always a scepticism that government really wants to um, do something long-term and serious. Um, you know, people un- understandably um, get sceptical that government will do, that. you know, that they might just be focused on quick wins or sort of some nice-sounding announceables. And I think part of our role, Alison and I, in kind of spending a lot of time with the, with the expertise on the advisory group is to make it clear that's not what we're here for and that's not what the ministers and the Prime Minister want. They actually want this to be a long-term and broad-based strategy and to be operating at multiple levels. And um, I think, you know, trying to deal with that scepticism, you've got to be prepared to take a bit of heat and a bit of frustration. You know, some of the people who are on the advisory group have worked in this sector for 30, 40 years. They've... um, you know, they've given their life to it. They they have um, been disappointed by different governments of different persuasions in the past and seen sort of policy ideas come and go. So you kind of have to let them express some of that frustration. I think, I think that's been um, one of the keys. And, you know, just being a good listener and not necessarily having to respond to everything or be defensive when, when people have a bit of a go at the department, I think is a key kind of skill that you learn as a public servant and that's come in very handy uh, in, this, in, this, um, in this role. I'd, I'd say also there's an inherent kind of um, bit of tension between the groups who um, have come out of the women's movement and the groups out of the LGBTIQ movement They've got common goals. They both want the same thing, but it's a question of language sometimes. is It can be hard for us mm. to get the language right and yeah. for us to not inadvertently exclude people. So that's been something we've had to work through. I think the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, 
uh, representation on the group has been fantastic, but we also, I should mention, have a separate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Advisory Council, which is chaired by an external person, uh, Sandra Kremer, who's the head of AWAVA, and, um, sorry, Natsiwa, not AWAVA, and she, that adds depth and, and breadth to the work as well. So those are, I guess, some of the challenges for me and, you know, I take the role very seriously as I know Alison does and I do consider it a real honour to be able to work on something of such importance. Well, thank you uh, for that answer and we now go to the segment of the podcast where we feature the IPA future leaders and questions from the IPA future leaders. And Liz, I'll ask this question. It comes from Jack Milne from the Attorney General's Department. And Jack asks, are you able to provide any additional information on how the draft action plan will relate to the recent release of Australia's disability strategy? Thank you for the question, Jack. So we've got a a few big um, cross-cutting strategies happening in our department. We've got the national plan, to end violence against women and their children. We have um, Australia's disability strategy. We've also just released Safe and Supported, which is a national framework to um, prevent child abuse. So our secretary and our executive are very keen that these kind of plans actually intersect and support each other. Um, So in the case of disability, we have representation from Women with Disabilities Australia on our advisory group We work very closely with our disability colleagues because women with disabilities are more likely to suffer domestic violence and sexual assault, shamefully, in Australia. So they will definitely be one of the high priority and target groups. Um, So that work happens within the department in some ways um, by making sure that, you know, we're working across what can be internal silos and making sure that we're presenting kind of a joined-up story on the work we're doing. And uh, thank you very much for that answer to Jack Milne's question. And to you, Alison, a question from Emily Casey from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And Emily asks, has the consultation process, which included victim survivors, specialist services, representatives from the health, law and justice sectors, change the way you view this issue and how you think government needs to respond? Oh, that's that's a great question. Um, I think it's certainly been necessary to have that divert the diverse perspectives there. Um, I think for me the thing that has changed is is recognising the um, increased focus on this in the, since 2010 when this the first national plan was put in place. Um, and the increased dollars that all governments have continued to allocate towards towards this issue. They, as I said, they appreciate its importance. They want to do something about it. So over the last 11 years, the money going into programs and prevention programs, support programs, so, so many aspects of domestic and family violence has increased um, really massively. And that's a great thing. But what I think for me has changed, and that's based on all, contemplating all the feedback from the really diverse stakeholders, is is in a way it's it's a paradoxical thing that the more money you spend, the more I think we need to keep reminding 
people in the community that this doesn't mean that government can solve this problem. You know that, and mm. the stakeholders know this. They know that, and they know that money is really important, and all this support is needed. But I do worry about people who aren't as as connected to the sector and understanding of the issue. They hear those shocking statistics, and then they would hear a really big number that's spent from the Commonwealth government and all the state and territory governments. And I really worry that there might be some extent to which they think, well, that that'll fix it, or that that's that's the best we can do, and just hearing all those perspectives from stakeholders, you just reminded all the time that this is such a deep cultural thing. It requires really active engagement from all of us. And we just can't ever just assume that the more money is expended on this issue, the, the less that means I have to, to think about this really actively and take a stand myself. And for me as a parent, that means not leaving a respectful relationships training, you know, not leaving respectful relationships training to a school program or something that might be funded somewhere. It's about that daily, that daily teaching about what's important and how we show respect to women and to everyone around us. So I just think there's so many aspects of that where people, and I hear this from stakeholders all the time, and you can see the underpinnings of this, this disrespect and where it culminates in violence. And I think it's good to just be reminded and remind ourselves that We've all got a role to play. Governments will continue to spend money. They will rely on expert organisations and expert advice to do that the best way that they can and to get maximum effectiveness. But it's it's a deep issue that requires really active engagement, thinking, support and commitment from everyone. Alison, that's a great observation. And I wonder, Liz, how do you feel about that uh, particular observation that, with, with government money, programs, big spending, that the community perhaps gets complacent and thinks that it's government's job uh, to solve the problem when in fact the problem is in the people. How do, how do you make sure that the people understand that it's their responsibility and how do, you know, largely men understand that the behaviour is completely and totally unacceptable? So one of the key things we've been doing is the Stop It At The Start campaign, which is um, there's been three phases so far and the government's um, committed funding for a fourth. People will have seen the Stop It At The Start ads. Um, the last series was um, around the theme of unmute yourself. So when you're seeing disrespectful behaviour, take yourself off mute and actually speak up. And a lot that came from a lot of research, uh, the kind of thing Alison was talking about, which is that people people felt terrible about the domestic violence statistics and sort of thought, well, you know, government can fix that. And really, as Alison said, something this deep in our culture and our behaviour, it requires an effort from all of us. And a lot of people, when they were interviewed for the research for those campaigns, said, you know, I know, I know when I see disrespectful behaviour, I can kind of recognise it, but I feel uncomfortable about saying anything or doing anything. So the purpose mm. of the campaign is to actually encourage people to take that next step and, and speak up. And, um, you know, there's the episode of the kind of man, two men at the football, a father and grandfather, and the father saying, you know, you're playing like a girl, and then the grandfather saying what's wrong with playing like a girl? And it's just supposed to be normalising the idea. You can call people out in a nice way and in a funny way even. 
but you can call out some of those underpinning behaviours and attitudes that underpin uh, disrespect. So uh, all our research suggests that Alison's right, that it has to operate on those multiple levels. The other thing I'd say is that far more now, I think we've got engagement from the business sector, the university sector, some of those other sectors in society that haven't really been engaged with this topic in the past. And they are now beginning to see this is their business too. And it affects their employees, it affects productivity. So even from the point of view of the bottom line, it's their business, but they also know it's the right thing to do to to um, try and make sure their workplace is a safe place and their um, employees have the ability to get help and know what to do. So uh, I totally concur. I think that's something that has emerged over the consultations and through the evolution with the last national plan is we've become more aware of how broad and how deep-seated and um, how it takes changes in all of our behaviours. It's not just about money for services. Mm. Now, listen, just before we go and, and wrap up, our, our listeners are always interested in the personal reflections of uh, the senior public servants who we, who we do speak to. And I just wonder if there might be something that you've learnt out of this particular role in chairing the national or co-chairing the National Plan Advisory Group about yourself. What what, what have you learnt uh, about yourself given, um, Liz, you described it before as a privilege to be involved, but is there any one or two things perhaps you might have taken away? I'll start with you, Liz, and then finish with you, Alison. I think just an enormous um, respect for the people who've made this their life's work and, um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to work on this topic, but I also work on a range of other issues and I have done throughout my career. Some people have really given their whole life and career to this topic and just um, extraordinary people who I, I, you know, have so much admiration and without their kind of commitment, you can't get an issue like this progress. So I guess it's admiration, uh, my own sense of luck that this is an issue, not an issue that's touched me personally in a, in any significant way. Um, and, yeah, just, uh, as I said, honour and privilege to work on it. And for you, Alison? Yeah, I certainly agree with Liz. And I think for me the, the personal learning then has been um, a a learning about how to take strength from other people, like the people that we're working with on that advisory group. As Liz said, they've dedicated their lives to work in this area. They are so knowledgeable. They work every day with women who've been affected, women and men, being affected by domestic and family violence, and they they just keep going and they'll, they never lose their purpose and determination and motivation to do better. And I think for me, I've watched that and listened to that and thought and really taken strength from that myself and thought, you've got to keep going. You know, as you, you when you opened, you talked about the enormity of the problem and it's, it's easy sometimes to think it's just so big, where do we start? But you can really take heart and and be renewed by working with people who have done so much and have committed so much of their own, their, their work and their expertise to continuing to respond to this issue and I think that's something that's been a real positive for me and just think just keep going there are always opportunities to do more and I think for Liz and I it's been a privilege to chair the group and to just take the work through to the next stage. 
Well, Alison and Liz, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your insights today. I took an enormous amount away from it, uh, and let's hope. Let's 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 well, let's better than hope. Let's make sure that this draft national action plan becomes a national action plan and it's well communicated, it's well understood, and we continue to make progress. So thank you very much for coming on to Work With Purpose today. Thank you. Thanks, David. Work With Purpose is a part of the GovCom's podcast network, and we would be both delighted and grateful if you could find the time to give us a nice rating and a review on your favourite podcast player, because it does help us to be discovered by others. Thanks again to IPA and to the Australian Public Service Commission for their ongoing support for the program, and particularly to the great team at IPA who do such a wonderful job in finding and preparing the wonderful topics and guests for the podcast, such that we've had today. And also to the team at Content Group for making all the technology and the production and the promotion and all these other things happen behind the scenes. So a big thanks to all of them. My name is David Pembroke. A big thanks once again to Liz and Alison for coming on today. That's it for now. We'll be back at the same time in two weeks. But for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. 